For one thing, I think it's very fair for us to say that for us, the core definition of what it is to be socialist is a radical form of democracy. What's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week, we are pleased to have on a guest. We have Baskar Sankara from Jacobin Magazine, editor and publisher, also the author of The Socialist Manifesto that came out last year. Um, he's going to come on and we're going to talk about the relevance of Marxism and or socialism in the 21st century. And we're going to talk a little bit about basketball at the end as well. So, um, <laughs> so stick around for that. If you want access to his book, if you want to check that out, I'm going to put links down in the uh, show notes so you can check that out. Uh, we'll also tweet about it. So you can go ahead and see how you can either get an audiobook or the paperback version. Pretty sure the paperback's quite affordable. Um, you know, under 15 bucks, 12 bucks, something along that lines. So go ahead and check that out and stay tuned for a really kind of, I think it was a wonderful, wonderful discussion that we had with him um, covering a, a, a large swath of issues. So uh, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Yeah, buddy? Yeah, yeah. It was great. I can second that. Um, Baskar is wonderful. A great uh, interview, even though what we do isn't really an interview. It's more just collaborative discussions, but he's great at that. So it was a perfect fit. Exactly. Yeah. So um, just a little admin stuff. We just wanted to give a reminder that our Discord is live. So uh, it's a new thing for patrons that if you sign up to any one of the tiers, you can get access to our Discord chat. We've had some good discussions so far. People have been sharing art. We've been talking about philosophy. There are a couple of different rooms that you can kind of move in and out of that are are themed um, variously. So if you want to get involved in the Discord community, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. That's patreon.com slash slash Owls at Dawn. Of course, you can also access bonus episodes, and um, you can be involved in what's called the Democracy Motherfuckers tier, which is where you all get to choose an episode topic that we will discuss, and then we put a poll up, and then you vote, and uh, we'll talk about that. We just talked last week about the last patron chosen topic, so what we'll do actually now, um, by the time this episode is live, is we'll be releasing another sort of fielding of suggestions, and we'll ask for input, and you guys can tell us what you want us to discuss, and then we'll run a poll in the coming weeks, and then we'll talk about it in a little bit. So yeah, patreon.com slash owls at dawn, and I think that's pretty much admin stuff out of the way, yeah dude? Yeah, yeah. Sweet. All right. So now we got to start off the episode the way we start off every motherfucking episode. It's with the shitty minute. Uh, minute, loosely speaking, metaphorically speaking, because usually very loosely. it's about <laughs> very loosely. It's about ten minutes or so of somebody ranting and raving about something that is ticking them off, chapping their hide. Uh, what did we say? Grease in their gooch. I don't know what it. Whatever it is. What the something fuck? that is. What has got you all in a tizzy? Troy, it's your turn this week. Go ahead, brother. The floor is yours. So, Austin, have you heard about this new Netflix movie, Moxie? No. Um, so I already hate it. I already <laughs> hate it. It's uh, it's directed by Amy Poehler, 
Um, I don't know if she was involved in writing it, but it, it certainly seems like she was involved in writing it. Um, but it's uh, it was intriguing at first when I saw the trailer for it a little while ago because the basic plot is that uh, Amy Poehler is a, um, a sort of, uh, you know, middle-aged mother in a suburban household, uh, single mother with a teenage daughter. And Amy Poehler's character used to be a kind of um, feminist punk rock riot girl, if you're familiar with the subgenre mm-hmm. of punk rock riot girl from the early 90s. Um, and then, you know, kind of moved on from that and ended up becoming a suburban mom. And I think they're in Oregon, somewhere around Portland. I don't know if it's exactly Portland, but I'm pretty sure it's Oregon. And uh, the teenage daughter kind of, um, it's a coming of age kind of film where she goes from studious, shy, introverted um, girl to a fully flowered um, feminist icon when she discovers her mom's kind of punk rock past, discovers Bikini Kill. Uh, Bikini mm-hmm. Kill is featured you strongly. You love Bikini Kill. Yeah, I mean, they're not one of my favorite bands, but they're a very good band. Um, and certainly were an important, super important band culturally in punk rock, uh, both in terms of the early 90s was not a great time for punk rock. <laughs> it's basically mm-hmm. bad religion and then nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Bikini Kill not only was a, a you know innovative band during that time period for punk rock but also incredibly influential in sort of you know allowing that male dominated and pretty chauvinist space to be opened up to women as well um and then you know one of my favorite bands ever uh sleater kinney is kind of follows in the footsteps there they're sometimes associated with riot girl didn't quite have that same sound weren't really like pure punk rock or anything but they certainly followed from that tradition that bikini kill kind of trailblazed uh, anyway, Bikini Kill plays an important role in the movie. I don't know if Kathleen Hanna was, you know, had any say in how they were utilized. I, w- I would think not, based upon what I'm going to say later. But um, uh, I was intrigued because the plot sounds kind of interesting um, and involves things that you would not be likely to see in mainstream movies that were directed by Amy Poehler, right? Mm-hmm. And then, and then the movie starts. Um, and I don't want to shit on this movie too much because it's not awful. I would excuse anybody for thinking that it's awful. Um, it was it was certainly like I didn't want to turn it off or like leave or anything. Um, but the entire movie centers around flowering into a, a feminist kind of full woman icon entirely through cultural representation. Half the movie basically is spent on um, this election. It's not even an election. It's a it's an election that the student body undergoes to give a scholarship to one athletic or athlete in the student body. That's always won apparently by the good looking white quarterback of the football team. And he's, and he always runs unopposed, I guess. And so the, the girls get together and they form their club called Moxie and they push forward the, I think, um, uh, soccer star, uh, girl, to run against him and they pin all their hopes on of gender equality on winning this election. And so the entire prism of the movie is basically just calling out men for not being allies and focusing on how their problems will be solved through proper cultural representation equal to what men get. There's even a a really cringy scene where the white male plaid, you know, tucked in shirt, uh, history teacher or English teacher or something. I can't remember what he teaches. 
uh, is being filmed by one of the students tripping over his own words, trying to figure out what he's supposed to say about the controversial Moxie um, uh, zine or zine that's being developed by this group. Um, that, that, that felt, that really hit close to home. Like as if, and, and, and teacher is cast as like, as being a, a, a wuss or a non-ally for being worried about being video recorded by one of his students on, an, on a controversial you know, political matter in the school that could get him fired. I just felt like if only this was happening in a community college where it's an adjunct and they're like <laughs> worrying about, you know, oh, no matter what I say at this point, I'm not going to get renewed for next term just by the fact that I'm being recorded. Um, and again, I don't want to be too judgmental of the movie. Uh, I actually think that um, there's something kind of unwittingly I don't think this was purposeful, but maybe I'm wrong and I'm not ascribing enough um, sort of foresight to the to the writers. But focusing so heavily on this election for the student body, which is totally meaningless in the grand scheme of things, right? Um, you know, spoiler, the, the quarterback still wins anyway. Um, after he goes... Oh, uh, shit. He, he, go, he goes on the student news channel and gives an impromptu uh, grie- outrage grievance thing about the moxie group and how they're targeting men for to be canceled and that you could be next uh it's basically just like a tucker carlson rant um like steven steven crowder some shit like that yeah that exact kind of thing and people get get afraid <laughs> and then they vote for him some yeah. for some reason uh or maybe there's malfeasance behind the scenes i don't think it's ever really clear um but it's actually kind of unwittingly i think an important like showcase or illustration of the electoral process and how when you see equal- democratic equality is entirely about the proper representation uh, via the presidential office and surrounding offices, right? That if only we elected someone who looks a certain way like me and have the proper representation in those highest spheres of office, political office, then things will be better. And that the absurdity of these high school kids placing all of their hopes for equality on winning a $10,000 scholarship for a soccer star. Um, as if like, that would obviously be a good thing if she won, but it would be much better if she won because there was already equality in the student body. <laughs> Not just like, mm. if she her winning is going to achieve that, it's clearly going to be an after effect, right? Um, them pinning their hopes all on that and being so distraught and actually engaging in like vandalism and violence because she loses reminded me so much of like Russiagate stuff after Hillary lost. We can't accept that this happened kind of mentality, right? And actually, I think that because that was so absurdly played in the movie, I don't think intentionally. It just kind of comes off really absurd, at least to me. It was it was actually a thoughtful representation of the kind of insanity of pinning all of your hopes for equality on just electing someone to office and then being done. The kind of hmm. democracy is doing 15 minutes every four years thing, as Baskar will say later, I think is an appropriate way of, of defining that. So, yeah, hmm. um, that's my shitty minute. It's not a terrible movie. It's perfectly enjoyable to watch. There's some really cringy moments, but, you know, it's a movie. So, like, whatever. Um, but, yeah, I actually encourage people to watch it. One, just because um, Bikini Kills in it. So, like, that's enough to watch it for that reason. Um, <laughs> But also, there's some interesting, there's some interesting, you know, critical stuff that you can do in thinking through it. It's certainly not a uh, a totally dumb, uh, unthoughtful movie at all. But you know, I think it it was certainly in, in the grand scheme of things, uh, not by itself super productive for thought. But it could be the kind of thing you could springboard into into thought, as I'm hoping to do here. 
Yeah, well, so here's the thing. You have to remember that who are the people who write these films? They're people who are a member of the Academy. And how do the Academy win their awards? They win their awards by what sounds like the very same strategy that these people were using in the film to be able to kind of like bolster other people. A lot of people th get this wrong. Let me just educate some of the audience a little bit here. The Academy Awards, the Golden Globes, the SAG Awards, it's not like some sort of objective panel. The Screen Actors Guild Awards is the one that, you know, they vote on uh, for actors and stuff like that. And so that's like the best acting award because you're voted uh, by your peers, right? But that's what it is. It's people that are part of SAG that vote for that, right? Now, is just that like even the really going to be all that good, though? Because I know that the like, NBA players vote for their all-stars and their voting is often worse than the fan voting. Yeah, because they just vote for their friends, right? So that's that's kind of the same thing. You vote for – like when Leo won for The Revenant, like should he have won for The Revenant? I mean I don't personally think so. But the way that it's been interpreted – not that Leo's not a great actor, but it's that that was like more like a, a lifetime achievement award, that he'd been nominated so many times in the past and he didn't win for roles. It became a I think he should. Yeah. Right. I think he should have won for Wolf of Wall Street, you know? But so mm -hmm. it was kind of like, okay, it's his turn. Let's finally give him the recognition that he needs at this prestigious award. So there's all these like – backroom deals, producers that are paying for people that are running these really expensive campaigns because if you win the best film, then you may, there's like measures that show how much more money you'll make uh, after the, 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 the award has been bestowed upon you. So, you know, there's all these back... So you have to think. People that are writing, they're thinking that that's how things are done. That's what politics is in their mind, right? That's what politics mm -hmm. is. So that's kind of, I think, that's what they're kind of doing here. That's what they're showing here. You know, and so all you got to do is you got to just create a movement that show that the girl bosses are the ones who deserve the awards and the attention, and then they're going to win the scholarship, right? And so that's the idea here. So I think you have to think that okay, it's it's Academy Awards style uh, political maneuvering, but in the context of like high school sports and trying to get a scholarship or some shit like that. Yeah, and you know the the great inconsistency and tension that I love about um, about this is the through line of all this stuff is punk rock, right? And Bikini Kill, which is like, you know, riot girl wrecking shit up, causing problems, being a nuisance, that kind of stuff. Um, and yet the characters, the main characters in the film regularly go to the principal and to other authority figures to, to tattletale on what the boys do, like making a list of who the sexiest girls are and who has the biggest boobs and shit like that, right? Like they yeah. literally tattletale in front of people the least punk rock fucking thing you could do, right? Um, not kicking him in the balls, right? Not anything like really, you know, like late 70s, 77 punk rock style. No, like tattletailing on them to authorities. <laughs> and then being aghast that the authorities don't follow through on it because there's some power imbalance that, you know, benefits the you know male quarterback more than, the, um, than these girls. And it's like, it's staring you right in the face. The problem here is that you don't have equal power in this relationship as a student. And the fact that the authorities won't sort of um, give in to your moral qualms and to your outrage is evidence of the fact that you don't have the power that the male quarterback who can go on the student news channel whenever he wants, apparently, unbeknownst to you, has. And yet that's basically totally ignored um, for this, like, representational uh thing so it's, it's even like they even sort of put out there in some of the uh uh tensions in the narrative what the actual solution and proper diagnosis would be of the situation and punk rock should aid you somewhat <laughs> in realizing that 
uh, that the authority figures are not to be trusted. At least. That's a punk rock kind of maxim, right? Um, and yet, no, tattletaling as if the authority figures are going to follow the abstract moral rules you think that they should is instead um, a more obvious solution. And then being upset when they don't do so is the more obvious solution. If we were talking about this, I don't remember if we were talking about it on the episode or if we were just talking about it with me. You know, we were talking about it when we were talking about Richard Dawson. You know, like good art puts you in the story and it just kind of is phenomenological. It describes the world. It tells you about that perspective. It brings you into that person's unique perspective. Bad art is representational. Bad art is where it's like heavy-handed and it's only using the vehicle of story and the vehicle of character to, to preach some sort of idea. And it seems like the idea here is a sort of like liberal, centrist, kind of like lean-in type of feminist story. Is that mm-hmm. kind of why it irks you more than anything? Because it's like it, you can taste the inauthenticity maybe? Certainly that. I'm also offended that, you know, Bikini Kill and Riot Girl could be used that way. I mean, I know that that uh, literal capitalism eventually affect, infects everything, even its, you know, negations. But um, that's, a, that's kind of an offensive thing to take in as well. And I think you're absolutely right. That's a, an important point that it is purely representational and preachy. Like you can read off how you're supposed to watch this film and how you're supposed to feel. It tells you how to feel about it. Um, Not only that, but it tells you how to feel in this really narrow, naive, non-complicated, non-nuanced way. So not only is it uh, oppressive in the sense of telling you how to feel, it's also uh, the the, the feelings it's telling you to feel are kind of childish. So it's kind of like doubly and triply um, bad for that reason. And And you don't have to be like that. You can certainly... Um, have things that are open to interpretation or at least if the film's going to tell you how to feel which sometimes I think can be appropriate um, make that complex and nuanced so that it's actually an experience that sticks with you rather than the kind of thing that you would just immediately forget about afterwards unless you were pissed off about it Mm. yeah 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 well it doesn't sound like the worst thing in the entire world um, but it definitely isn't something I'm going to be rushing to see. I'm so bored no. of Netflix's conflict or content, so I probably won't spend the hour and a half to watch it. I personally no, don't do that. Just spend the hour and a half listening to old Sleater Kinney records, not their new one because it sucks. But the ones from the '90s and early 2000s, those are fantastic. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and jump into the main segment and chat with Baskar a little bit. Yeah. 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 All right, sick. So as I said at the top of the show, we are pleased to have Baskar Sankara on, the editor and publisher of Jacobin Magazine and the author of the recently released, I guess recently last year is still recent, correct? Uh, The Socialist Manifesto that has recently come out on paperback as well. It's out on Audible, um, super affordable, get it out. And it's kind of a nice lead-in for what we're going to talk about because we're going to be talking about the relevance of Marx and socialism in the 21st century. So, Baskar, what's up, brother? Hey, how are you? Thank you so much for for having me. It's an it's an honor. I'm 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 very. This is this is one of the few podcasts that I'm looking forward to doing because you guys talk for a while. It's not like a soundbite thing, which is good. <laughs> It, yeah, it's, it's called bullshitting. Austin, is yeah. uh, basically no, no. I like <laughs> yeah. it. I like it. Uh, I now I have to try to figure out whether I actually have ideas besides for the two minute, two minute sound bites that you know you you're, you're trained when you're when you're doing media to like compress things into. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, well then let's do let's do um, a kind of easy one. I think uh, we just got some news that uh, Lula in Brazil has been cleared of charges. 
Uh, my partner is Brazilian, um, so uh, she is always like keeping me updated on things that are going on with her and her family debates about uh, politics in Brazil. Um, I know you were close with Michael Brooks, who did a sort of, I guess we could say, groundbreaking interview with Lula, who really brought um, the Brazilian situation, political context, and particularly the politics of Lula and the Labor Party there, PT, um, to a lot of uh, public consciousness. What are your thoughts? What does this mean that Lula has been cleared of charges and he can he can now contest Bolsonaro in a, a possible future election? What does this mean for socialism? What does this mean for the global socialist movement? And then what does it mean for Brazil? What do you, what do you think about this? Well, first of all, I think it's fantastic um, news. The But it's worth noting that he hasn't been cleared of charges. What they said is that he was charged in the wrong court, so that so the charges were dismissed. And the only reason why I bring that up is I have a fear that there will be some kind of um, maneuvering by by the Supreme Court in Brazil. Uh, I fear that there will be pressure from the Brazilian military, which is quite right wing, against Lula. So I'm not sure we're in the clear yet. But if he is able to run in the fall of 2022, he'll beat Bolsonaro. I think now, so. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I think so. From talking with Pete uh, people, it seems like they're very optimistic about that prospect, that if they have Lula and they have the team in place, they'll be able to beat him. And even if they don't have Lula, they'll be able to run at least a competitive race with someone else, Fernando Haddad or, or, or someone uh, someone else. I, I actually got the chance to to know um, Haddad. Uh, he was in the U.S. I spent maybe a week with him in New York and Burlington, kind of all all around. He's a very, very, very nice, humble, charming, charming guy. Obviously, Bolsonaro beat him by pretty considerable measure uh, last time around. I think there was a lot of anti-Pete sentiment in civil society. I think a lot of ordinary people didn't realize how bad Bolsonaro would be. And right now, Brazil is just a total mess with the way that COVID has been handled there. Uh, economic chaos, you're seeing just really incompetent um, bureaucrats with military backgrounds getting appointed to, to key health positions just because of their, their connections with, with Bolsonaro. It's really, really dangerous what's, what's happening there, not to mention just the general right-wing climate and, and other, other measures. So, obviously, there's going to be a good position for an opposition to be. I think Lula's the one candidate that you could imagine a broader segment of the population might sit this one out, would yeah. uh, would rally behind. If he runs, they win, but I don't think there's a lot of optimism about what they can do in the short term to affirmatively advance the left's agenda or advance something like a democratic socialist agenda. I think that the first term of this government will just be a lot of repairing the mess that Bolsonaro created, restabilizing society mm. with the acknowledgement that if things are destable, reactionaries far more often than the left are the ones who, who benefit. So I'm not sure, given the economic environment that they'll inherit and whatever else, whether mm. a lot can be done, but at the very least there'll be a restabilization. And, we saw that even the somewhat, in my view, inadequate measures of the early Pete governments still made a tremendous difference in the lives of millions of, of people, saved millions of people from extreme poverty. Millions of people were able to go to 
university for the first time or even get a decent primary education for the first time. It was really transformational for the poor and working class people in Brazil. And um, maybe they won't be able to do that kind of transformation this time again, but there is no real third camp. There is Lula and the forces around him, and there is Bolsonaro and the forces around him. And if people were, you know, especially mainstream Democrats, I think often both complain about the nature of Lula and the PT, those that are, are engaged, but at the same time tell us to vote for, for Biden or for the worst Democrats, you know, at least the PT is actually delivered for their, their constituents in a, in a serious way. Hmm. It's interesting when, when I hear you talk here, it, um, it doesn't sound like you're speaking like some sort of um, idealist, like uh, Pete is this like perfect uh, holder of the keys to the kingdom, and it's going to usher in some sort of Eden on earth. You're kind of like, look, there are two options at the moment. One is clearly better than the other because it has the capacity to transform the lives of real working class people, the poor, etc., etc. And this I think we can use as a transition maybe into... Um, kind of this larger issue with, uh, you know, when I messaged you, I said, what, what, what do you think is a good theme to talk about? And you're like, how about the lasting relevance or the relevance, let's say, of Marxism and or socialism in the 21st century? And I think this is something that that really sort of like goes to the heart of this debate that, that kind of swirls around between social democracy versus democratic socialism versus like revolutionary Marxism or Marxist, Marxist communism. Um, what do we think about this kind of uh, battle between like an idealism and a sort of more pragmatic or maybe we would call it like a, like a political realist approach to um, what positions we ought to advocate? Well, I think that Marxism has always based itself and socialists in the Marxist tradition have always been realist because a lot of what the Marxist worldview is around is, is about being historical materialists, about rooting our analysis in, in the experience of history and in material realities. So Marxists always use language to the point that it's cliche within our tradition of talking about objective forces and about how talking about subjective will um, isn't enough to overcome the constraints on our agency by objective forces and, and, and things like that. So I feel like being a Marxist and being a revolutionary socialist and also being very pragmatic and kind of anti-idealist often goes hand in hand in hand. So um, for me, though, I, I do think it's really important that we say we should be really excited about pushing for our agenda. We should be very excited to tell people that so many of the day-to-day problems that they have, so much of the suffering that they deal with, is completely unnecessary. These are mm. things that we could do without. It's 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 a question of political power and and the will of, of actors to bring about a different world. We don't need to live in a world with, with homelessness and with exploitation and with all these myriad forms of oppression. There's no need for us to, to wait before th- uh, throwing out for, for people our immediate sets of, of demands and will improve their, their lives in the day-to-day and also our more far-reaching agenda of radically transforming the society so that democracy is not a thing that you just do every four years for 15 uh, minutes, but something that's a thoroughgoing process that, that embeds democracy in society in such a way that people 
are real stakeholders in this in this world, no matter who they are, no matter uh, where they you know, they came from. So I think we we do need to always foreground that we do have a positive agenda, while at the same time saying, hey, just by advocating it, we're not going to bring it about, you know, especially in this period of historic weakness. So I guess that's the kind of the anti-utopian utopianism, right? Like we we need both. <laughs> you know, it's funny, Baskar, uh, both Austin and I are ex-evangelicals and um, Marxists won't like this analogy with uh, with religion, but just work with me here for a second. Um, one thing that always bothered us about American evangelicals, we know Austin always had a, a bone to pick about this with people during those times, was that the the gospel which you're supposed to be spreading as an evangelical is supposed to be good news literally evangelical means or evangelion means good news um and yet it's always very somber and about going to hell and stuff like that right and so it's always this weird contradiction in their good news being very somber and despairing in terms of content and that actually if it's going to be good news it needs to be a thing that's naturally intrinsically attractive uh, and worthwhile for the person who's hearing it. And there's kind of an analogy there where, you know, leftists oftentimes, everything is so negative and everything is so um, simply a diagnosis of what's wrong with the current system and with capitalism, that there's, it's not foregrounded that we have the more attractive option. We have the, we have the thing that's naturally intrinsically attractive that shouldn't be hard to convince somebody that improving their material stakes and giving them more power on a day-to-day -day basis in their workplaces um, and their cities and in their country is something that they would naturally want. I think the the key difference is that it is the advantage that a religion has, the advantage that the evangelicals have, is that they can promise everything after our material existence, right? After life. Um, mm -hmm. Or that they could promise that Jesus will one day return, but it doesn't have to be, be tested. Whereas for us, we mm -hmm. have to grapple with the failure of many forms of socialism in the 20th century and mm -hmm. the fact that there are a lot of people who agree with our abstract um, demands, who agree with the idea of a more equal and just world, but who feel like it's been tried and tested and found wanting. And that's one thing that I was trying to do in my book was to actually grapple with a lot of this history, to demystify it, so we could actually have real answers of, okay, why did the Soviet experience go so wrong? What happened in China? What were the successes in Northern Europe with social democracy, but also why did it fall short of our loftier socialist ambitions? Because I want to get us back to the place where we think that socialism is politically impossible at the moment, but technically possible because politics is a thing you can change. Whereas I feel like for a lot of working people, they think that socialism itself is, to the extent it even registers in their in their day-to-day -day lives, they feel like it's well-intentioned, but doomed to have unintended consequences, uh, either at the political level or even at the level of economic inefficiency. And that's why showing people that, hey, the welfare state can work. Hey, the British NHS is doing a great job through socialized medicine uh, of distributing this vaccine despite having a buffoonish right-wing government. And other governments are not doing as well when they have more decentralized, less socialized systems and, and whatever else. I think this all serves a role in bringing back the idea that the state and therefore the, the, the social sector can do things uh, effectively. Hmm. It is interesting. Um, yeah, 
I still feel like I, I, I I'm I'm all for like heralding a, a better world kind of kind of approach when we're um, discussing discussing the um, the ideals or the principles of of a, of a socialist critique rather than being so sullen and and kind of just simply focusing on a ruthless critique, right? I I always want to be like, but here's the wonderful thing that's on offer. You know, we can love better. We can um, build better communities. We can do fucking sports better. You know, we can have sex better. We can make food better. How and in what ways is the difficulty of kind of translating, right? But it's really interesting you say that that the difference is is that uh, Christianity uh, always has that that sort of like get out of jail free card, which is the no, 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 no. Even if it fails in this world, we're not talking about that. Don't worry. We're talking about something that is untestable. It's uh, it's that always to come. It's it's that this world is just a means to that that ultimate end, which characterizes much of what like Nietzsche, when he criticizes Christianity as being nihilistic, it's because it rejects this world. It refuses this world in favor of some sort of fantastical other, we might say. Whereas maybe some people within like a left tradition um, could be faulted for that, where they say, no, 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 no. That was never real socialism, right? Like the Soviet Union, that wasn't. Re- that was just state capitalism. And so there's like a get out of jail free card there, where they can always kind of justify um, maybe a more idealist uh, orientation because they can always say, no, 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 no. The real communism is always the communism to come, sort of thing. Right. Maybe um, this is this is one of yeah, and and that's kind of like a nihilistic, I think, view of of the the, the world that is. So I always kind of feel myself pulled between these two tendencies the part of me where it's kind of like well i i do actually think that that uh soviet union was uh, state capitalism i agree with someone like moish pastone um i do agree that that's the case but at the same time we can't just simply disregard that they were actually um embodying if you will marxist principles and and socialist uh, policies and things like that right. so we do have to reconcile ourselves with the failures and i always feel torn between those two you know yeah i mean that's a huge huge question i mean that question spans spans continents it's it's hard to yeah. it's hard, it's hard to answer but what i would say is for one thing i think it's very fair for us to say that for us the core definition of what it is to be socialist is a radical form of democracy and that we feel like mm-hmm. capitalism therefore cannot be fully socialist even in social democratic forums like in Sweden because it's still reliant on private workplaces that are owned and controlled by capitalists even if a lot of the social wealth created in those workplaces are then being siphoned and delivered back to the workers who produced that that well if that makes sense but in the same way we mm-hmm. could say that in the soviet union this is a society that also doesn't fit our definition of socialism because it did not empower ordinary working people in either the political sphere like the with the rights that they've already won in, in most democracies in the advanced capitalist world but also in the economic and social sphere while there were certain victories in certain periods of like there were was worker consultation at some level uh in especially places like yugoslavia but even with the creation of the the plans and even dictatorships like east germany there was some worker consultation but but not enough so it still doesn't characterize our vision of what we've described as a radically democratic society in any ways and, and especially because the political democracy is contracted so we could say okay that's not socialism either but that doesn't mean it's capitalism like a lot of radicals mm-hmm. a lot of leftists have called the bureaucratic collectivists 
I mean, I kind of hate those debates. Like, I, when I was much younger, I think I was more invested in the state capitalism versus bureaucratic collectivism debates and things like that. I generally prefer that. Other uh, bureaucratic collectivism, some people call it authoritarian collectivism or whatever else. But if, whether you want to call it socialism or not, it wasn't a good system. It's not one we want to emulate. But there might be some lessons from certain things in it that we needed to do. So one is there was an earnest attempt by Soviet planners to achieve certain social and developmental objectives. And those objectives were largely oriented not towards their own aggrandizement as bureaucrats, but rather towards the fulfillment of certain social um, needs for the population. And to what extent they failed or succeeded is important for us to understand. So looking at the Soviet economy, I can see real successes in certain spheres. I can see successes creating institutions of, of education, both these big polytechnical institutes have produced incredible engineers and scientists of all, of all types. I can see certain successes in, in creating a flourishing a social and cultural life for people who previously were illiterate, previously might have been peasants, but mm. in the Soviet Union they were given this this world of opportunity the idea that culture belonged to the people not just the elite i think was was there um and we could see certain other sectors where there was real achievements but then we could also see total just disaster when it came to let's say consumer goods production uh waste and inefficiency in workplaces uh not being able to keep up technologically especially after the 1960s and 70s with developments in the West and that, you know, pollution and environmental problems and so on. So I think, in other words, we need to get beyond the moralistic criticism of the whole system is is trash and it's all bad and actually look at it in more granular details. And in the end, mm -hmm. as a democratic socialist, I'm more critical than some people in official communist traditions of these, these systems. I would say maybe there's 20, 30 percent that we should take but either way, even in the what we're criticizing, I could then, from that historical experience, derive a critique of, let's say, a certain form of central planning that says that, okay, we might still need to retain markets in this sphere. And to the extent we still want planning here, the planning should have certain democratic inputs. And how do we reconcile increasing worker uh, power at the firm level without creating a new caste of worker owners that that lord over society in much the same way the capitalists do and whatever else. But all this flows from the real experience. But um, often it's like we sometimes run pieces in Jacobin, interesting interviews with people who were like formerly on the Central Committee of the East German uh, State in the late 1980s and talking about these debates about the transition, about the wall and markets and whatever. And then obviously the immediate response from American liberals like, even writers for the New York Times and things like that is, look, we told you Jacobin were crypto Stalinists all along. <laughs> and like, obviously what we're trying to do is understand things on their own terms, right? Um, before we, we even have a It's funny. Judgment, you're, you know crypt I mean? you're, you're crypto Stalinists from their perspective and you're crypto Democrats from the other angle, from the other <laughs> side, right? Yeah. So course. it's like... <laughs> yeah, I, I wish things were so, were so simple. <laughs> 
I can't believe you it, said markets could be good sometimes. Uh, yeah. But, 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 but you one know, thing it's, I, did, it's, I did want to bring yeah, up about, about something you said earlier, which I think struck me, was that when our movement was at our strongest and most united in the late 19th century, early 20th century, you could say we were locked out of power. So in other words, we did it did have that almost religious feeling of we are the future. History belongs mm. to us. We have the science of history on our side. We have time on our side. And we are waiting in the wings. We are ready to take power and to, to really end human history as we know it. It'll be prehistory and begin a new human history as liberated people. I mean, there, there's something that was really just powerful about what that, that second international era workers' movement thought about itself and the, its destiny. These poor huddled workers crammed into slums and exploited on their factory floor for 11, 12 hours a day were soon destined to be the new ruling class that would liberate all humanity. There was something really powerful with it, that, and then obviously, you know, it was shattered. World War One happened. World War One happened, yeah. and it was shattered by the experience of power, both the, the grappling with the hard yeah. realities of power in the Soviet Union and grappling with the compromises of power and of trying to govern a capitalist state in the interest of workers uh, in the post-war period and, and even a little bit in the interwar period with these minority uh, governments. You know, it's weird. I, I, I feel like uh, so many people on the left were so obsessed, and I guess we need to reconcile with the failures of, of efforts to implement um, at least the, the signifier of socialism or the signifier of Marxism. But I almost wonder if there isn't like this weird morose obsession that kind of holds us back because we're trying so hard to hold the torch or to carry the baton, so to speak, right? Um, and I and I wonder, I don't know, it almost feels, and, and it was just kind of hitting me really heavy when you were talking a minute ago, it feels like this obsession with, with like needing to always just, now granted, we're always if you align in any way uh, on the left, I mean, shoot, even if you're somebody like Bernie Sanders, you're constantly going to be called a freaking Marxist. Then they're going to call him like a, a Stalinist or something like that, right? Um, so you're, you, you get those kind of critiques from the right. But I feel like the left oftentimes maybe internalizes that and it kind of holds them back a little bit that they're so – they're so kind of obsessed with needing to work through those things. Not that we should ignore them, but I almost wonder if it kind of becomes a burden and a weight and if there isn't a sort of like internalized moralism that we are feeling like like we need to atone for the sins of our fathers, so to speak. And if there isn't like a weird, subtle kind of um, Protestantism maybe um, that is kind of like seeped into the consciousness more broadly. Well, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it's kind no, of I know what you theoretical. Mean, but yeah, I, yeah. I think... I think there is two separate projects at the same time. Now, one is the popular project of telling people that another world is possible and starting with our advocacy of broadly, you could call them social democratic, you could just call them immediate, whatever you want to call them, demands that will improve the lives of people, prove that the left can deliver things for them, prove that that the state can deliver things for them, um, and also hopefully bolster the power of working people so that they can successfully win more radical demands down the road. Like that's what we mostly focus on, right? That's what in the US, we're Medicare mm -hmm. for all, we're $15 minimum wage. We are the party of, you know, party in a small P, like like our poll of, of, of American politics is about redistribution uh, while also being 
socially, you know, progressive, right? You know, that's where we're, we're about. We're economic egalitarians who believe in, in in a certain set of things, and that's what we talk about, right? Like, I don't use my Guardian column to um, apologize for the actions of governments that I wasn't even born when they were were around, and I never, <laughs> I hopefully wouldn't have supported at the time anyway. Those those actions, right? Um, and even existing governments, to be perfectly honest, like I have a lot of problems with certain policies of the Cuban government, uh, but I also have tremendous, tremendous appreciation for the the historic accomplishments of of Cuban socialism and also what it's done to uplift uh, the the poorest and most oppressed in, in Cuba. So I'm probably not going to either write a piece praising it completely or or write it and i certainly wouldn't write a piece criticizing yeah um or openly discussing uh the criticisms i i do have because i know the way in which those those words would be wielded um and manipulated to maybe bring about something even worse in 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 cuba um so in in other words like i i feel like we have this we have we're getting we're nailing down the rhetoric pretty well with corbin and sanders or whatever else of our mass immediate appeal but as we're training cadre as we're bringing people together as democratic socialist activists if you're a dsa member you should have an opinion on the class nature of the soviet union i know that sounds ridiculous because Hmm. we don't want to train little sectarian bots but but people should be thinking about these things seriously whereas both the wider Berniecrat activist base that we're interacting with doesn't necessarily have to have an opinion on that, though, we, though they should be brought into our world of ideas and debates in, in, in a broad sense. But certainly for our propagandistic work, it doesn't have to factor in. I know I'm sounding like I'm some sort of like mm. like a hard um, Leninist bureaucrat, um, you know, creating different layers of, of knowledge. But I think that's a way that it always works with these things. You have your popularized um, message, but you also want to really dive into these things and create a culture of of debate and contestation and and discussion. And I, I do really want people to 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 know something about Yugoslav self management and why it didn't work in 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 Democratic Socialists of America. And I'm not sure enough of of our, of our members have even heard of Yugoslavia. Mm, it's interesting. So I produced the kind of experimental documentary version of the book Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism in a World Without Work. And one of the things that um, the authors, Nick Cernick and Alex Williams, have been concerned with over the years, I mean, their projects have kind of moved into different directions, but um, the issue of like establishing a counter-hegemonic um, uh, form of, of political orientation. And I, one of the quotes that we use in the film that comes from the book is, you know, that, you know, we kind of fetishize horizontal, oftentimes the left fetishizes horizontality and transparency, but that verticality and secrecy are actually valuable and useful at, at times. And so when you're talking about this kind of, it sounds like you're saying, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the propagandistic message that we give at one level, but then at the same time, there's other levels. To me, it doesn't seem like it's, ooh, it's like some sort of hidden cabal of like Gnostic elites that because are like we're not secretly lying. like yeah. puppet masters. We're not, we're not telling the yes, public exactly. one thing and believing another. We're just, we're explaining it in more depth and with more nuance and contradiction um, as we examine this as an intellectual thing, right? Like, in other words, I do think it's important for us to know how 
collectivization, for example, didn't just fail in the Soviet Union. It led to a lot of disasters in Ethiopia and other places. Like, but I'm not going to say, hey, mainstream media, you are really hammering us over what <laughs> Stalin did in the USSR. Quite curious, you don't give a shit about how we messed up the agricultural system in Ethiopia, too, in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, but, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And, you know, when, when I'm talking with uh, my, my you know, uh, high school-educated uh, construction friends, I don't need to be going into the debates, uh, you know, that Post Stone has with the reading of Capital um, or, like, you know, value-form Marxists. They view one thing and, uh, you know, uh, that, that uh, you know, World systems theory is is a, is a different thing. You know those sorts of things. They they can be valuable for people that are kind of like trying to engage in those debates. But there's certain levels at which we need to be able to communicate to different people, and then we ourselves need to be able to kind of navigate those different regimes or layers of uh, of information as well. So for me, it kind of all I don't know. It makes sense that it's that you don't just kind of like verbally vomit every single thing at every single instant all the time. But you do kind of have to have some sort of uh, strategy, I guess you would say, some tactics and some strategy for how it is that you're going to roll this out. I mean, I guess, I guess. Yeah, that's it. yeah, definitely. And, and again, what I always tell people who sometimes think that we don't talk about things that they think are important as radicals enough, what I would say is that if we don't have the class power to win something like Medicare for all, we won't have the class power to put worker ownership mm-hmm. of the means of production on the table. But like you, I actually do think that blueprinting out how worker ownership of the means of production could work and the relationship between, let's say, a worker state and individual enterprises, like like actually mapping that out, I actually think is a very useful exercise because it gets to a lot of questions about our values as socialists and also what our critique of capitalism in the present is. So, for example, sometimes when we, we are critical of markets and all their their respects when it comes to healthcare and, and other things. But in other cases, we're not necessarily critical of the market as the market in consumer goods. We're critical of where these individual consumer goods that are then traded in the market are um, produced, how exploitative those workplaces are. Some people are, are, are more critical of the market than I am. But in other words, like I think these thought experiments can get to a lot of relevant discussions about our day to day too. And, and obviously it shapes our vision of, of, of where we're going will shape how we fight for day-to-day demands. Like, for example, Sean um, McElway and these Data for Progress guys, they are lauding this Biden stimulus plan as proof that the Democrats are all of a sudden, mainstream Democrats are the vehicle for social democracy in America, right? Hmm. Whereas... I'm looking at the bill and saying, yeah, there's some good things in it, but essentially is one-time cash in someone's pocket, right? It doesn't structurally create a constituency for further change. It alleviates some suffering, which is, of course, is a good thing, and, and I'm, I'm given the option between more suffering and less suffering. Obviously, I'll take less suffering, but it doesn't really pave the way for anything further. It, it doesn't build a constituency for social democracy, much less socialism, whereas when we're constructing both policy and when we're thinking about um, what kind of world we're trying to to build, we'll be thinking about these political uh, dimensions in the way that others wouldn't. But that requires a degree of training to actually think about uh, social forces, to think about 
how we should structure ourselves and, and forms of party organization and things like that. And that requires history and looking back at, 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 at socialism. But, you know, once again, to repeat, I'm not saying that we internally have pictures of Hanukkah and Brezhnev and whatever, <laughs> and we worship them internally. But then to the outside world, we just talk about Corbyn and Sanders and, and whatever else. No, I'm saying that we are democratic socialists. Um, through and through, internally and and <laughs> externally, but internally, I am not afraid to take a look at some aspect of the East German Constitution in 1968 and say, "Wow, this is really cool! How they gave a free childcare and other training opportunities to women, and how this had really positive um, egalitarian impacts, or, or whatever else, you know?" Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious, Baskar. You mentioned. Um, the, the sense that if we don't have the constituency for social democracy, then we're not going to have a constituency for anything beyond that, democratic socialism, socialism, whatever. Um, I'm curious, you know, it seems to me like it's really important fact that the welfare state in America was never completed. It was kind of begun. Um, in fact, in some cases earlier than most the other welfare states uh, in, in Europe, but was never completed. And not to say that the you know, Northern European ones were completed in any sense, but certainly seem uh, to have gone further beyond the American welfare state. Do you think that that's an important historical fact um, for determining what our immediate projects are now? And does that sort of play into the notion that, you know, it's a, it's a strategic goal to achieve something like the immediate, um, the immediate results of social democracy? as a stepping stone towards um, a more ideal uh, system in the future. Yeah, I think that that social democracy helped create the conditions for something more radical than social democracy, because to me, social democracy and the goal of socialism aren't separate planes, but rather social democracy is just, socialism is just further along the same plane as social democracy. But that being said, in the process of governing a capitalist state and being social democrats out of necessity we end up adopting uh, our parties become transformed our trade unions become transformed and we become leaders of institutions that can actually never deliver socialism not often because we don't want socialism but because we're dependent on private capitalists to produce the wealth that we're then redistributing and we're dependent labor are these mass labor unions the socialists are leading are dependent on having profitable firms so that their workers are are bargaining at a firm that's not going to go out of business the next year and capitalists of course have this tremendous power to withhold um, investment so that leads i think to a lot of dilemmas and a lot of collection collective action problems that social democracy never resolved other than by backtracking and that's how you get Blairism and things like that but fundamentally I would like to a crude way of putting what I advocate is I would like to get back to some of those dilemmas of the 1960s and 1970s of social democracy and see if we could resolve them in a more left-wing way now I recognize that conditions are different we're not in the post-war boom we're not in a period where especially with environmental crisis looming and whatever else, where we can just sit back and build welfare states for 10, 20, 30 years and then see what happens when 
the contradictions heighten because of our, our successes. Uh, I think it'll be a much quicker cycle. I think we'll constantly have to try to push demands that right away challenge not just the distribution of spoils in a capitalist society, but questions ownership itself. So what can we do right away, day one, year one, of a administration elected on some sort of social democratic or democratic socialist mandate to foster the construction of a cooperative sector? What can we do to start pushing for the socialization of banks, the creation of, of a network of national public investment banks? What can we do to do this or do this to constrain the power of, of capital and to direct it where we want to direct it? and improve the capacities of ordinary working people and of, of, of the state. You know, what could Syriza have done to try to tap into this kind of anarchistic network of mutual aid, but actually say, okay, we want to figure out a way to incorporate this into our governing strategy instead of just treating them like any bourgeois government would, would treat them. So, um, in other words, I just want to make clear that I... I'm not so formalistically a left social democrat that I think that we just, you know, keep putting this thing off further and further into the future. And when I mm. say that we need to push for media demands like Medicare for all, I also think we need to push for some demands that right away challenge ownership and, and tries to erode capitalist power. Yeah, see, this is this is. Um... This has kind of always been kind of one of my issues that I wrestle with. You actually – you did um, you did like a, an interview on like Fox Business or some shit like that a long time ago. I mean, maybe like two years ago, something like – not a long time ago, a year and a half ago, two years ago. And then Adam Proctor from Dead Pundits like retweeted about it and was talking about like – uh, like the guest, the, you, you were saying something and the guest was like, oh, but aren't you just trying to sneak socialism in the back door or something along those lines? And Proctor and you got into like a discussion. And, and then I wrote like a little uh, a little commentary piece for the Progress and Political Economy website about my concerns with what I think was being called and what I called um, like Trojan horse socialism, right? And I guess I guess my concern was always like, okay – it's not just like, oh, we're trying to sneak socialism in the back door, like whatever, that's a separate issue. My concern was even the site at which the, quote, compromise of social democracy takes place itself. What if it's already fundamentally giving up the game? What if it's already giving up the problem? And there's been a lot of really good research kind of on, you know, how the New Deal, for example, actually was just simply um, – uh, uh, an intensification of the conditions that allowed for the expansion of, for example, finance capital through um, giving uh, more population access to mortgages. Now, it's good that people had homes, and it's good that uh, people were able to get like um, certain like labor victories with regards to like working hours and pay and, and other sort of benefits. But at the same time, it didn't actually – those compromises, they didn't actually fundamentally in any way contest capital. And what I wonder is, is, is it not because – is it because that there's also a sort of like um, limitation a lot of times in leftist analysis of capital itself? And and I know I'm being a bit abstract here, but what I'm thinking is is oftentimes um, Marxist types focus so much on like uh, industrial capital, like machinery and factories, I think, with the way that they think about things. But they neglect things like um, finance, right? Um, or they neglect things like the digital landscape or they neglect things like other forms of labor, like – Maybe we could call it um, attention labor, like they're calling it the attention economy now, or emotional labor and things like that, right? And so what I wonder is, is, is do we not then need to make sure that in our social democratic advocacy, our, our advocacy for 
um, making compromise, that we really have a robust strategy from the get-go of what it would mean to sort of overcome those compromises in the first instance, right? So what, yes. what would it mean? Yes. So yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, no, I absolutely think that right away we need to look at the dilemmas of social democracy and say, how do we institutionally structure our parties to avoid the problems of, let's say, the iron law of oligarchy? Um, and and the right. problems that arise when we have structured political parties and, and unions. So obviously we know about the tyranny of structurallessness that we get when we don't have those structures. Uh, but but how do we how do we do that? Maybe part of it is practical things like term limits are good in in left wing organizations and rotation of job offers hmm. and uh, hmm. people being assigned to certain roles by lottery. So. If you're afraid, by the way, about how it's gonna, how your union's gonna be run, or how your political party is gonna be run, if just one third of the membership are an important body by lottery, well, then you better train your membership better. <laughs> you better be more invested in in making sure people know what's going on and develop their own uh, capacities. Um, I would say, with the example of the New Deal, you know, I don't think the New Deal is the best example because I don't really consider it a social democratic movement or or reform. But I would say, even in something mm. like the New Deal. You could say that it just expanded the base for consumer base for capitalism or even helped certain sectors. Like, for example, because the New Deal um, helped boost the wages of a lot of industrial workers and agricultural workers, um, it therefore benefited capitalists in more labor-intensive industries. So big oil and places like that could cope with labor demands in the way that certain other forms of, of ca capital, the textile industry, could not. Um, so it obviously had unintended, you know, it shaped, not really unintended, I think good consequences of, of shaping American capitalism towards higher value added, um, more capital intensive industries and ultimately a more, a more productive economy. But, you know, obviously there, there are these these segments of capital that's better able to to adapt. I wouldn't say that it it was a boon to them. I would say that they're better able to adapt. And in the end, even in something like the New Deal, which I wouldn't consider even social democratic, you have the creation of, of mass industrial unions. You have a third of the population unionized. Now, unions bolster the power of workers vis-a-vis -vis capital. Now, unions, without even having a labor-based party, obviously are constrained to what they do. Unions without centralized bargaining, the way you have in, in places like Sweden, are constrained in what they can shape. But that's still something that no segment of capital wanted. And I think mm. if, obviously, the New Deal wasn't the best route for for the creation of even American welfare state. Obviously, we fell short of even social democracy, but it wasn't the worst outcome of those battles of the, the 20th century. And I think the real alternative to the New Deal and the kind of corporatist compromise between capital, labor, and the state is something that is even worse, which would, would have been just the state and capital colluding and continue to, to, to leave people in even more poverty rate wages and, and, and whatever, whatever else. But I definitely take the wider point 
that it is important for us to study what happened to these parties and to figure out concrete ways to prevent it to happen. And some of those ways are going to be at the level of institutional de uh, design and at the level of politics. And I don't think we mm. often talk about politics. We talk about the economy. We talk about lots of things <laughs> like that. But we don't talk about, well, how do you structure these things to still allow for efficiency and professionalism, but also to prevent bureaucratization. So how do you, in other words, reconcile expertise with democratic equality? And and that's, that's mm -hmm. I think, one part of, of my project going forward. I want to really grapple with these, these questions that I think have gone a little bit too neglected in, mm. in broadly our, our socialist tradition. So if we can just... Um before we talk about basketball for five minutes and then we'll let you get out of here, uh, if we can then say, okay, so that's part of your project looking forward. Um, one of my, I guess the, the matrix of my concerns right now um, are kind of in what I see as transformations of the previous kind of big three inputs of land, labor, and capital. Um, and particularly land, I'm really interested in digital space, like the space of online, right? As something that needs to be understood as um, a, a resource of land. I don't know if we need to implement like digital Georgism, where we're nationalizing digital platforms or something like that, and then imposing some sort of or, or imposing some sort of tax. I, I don't know what it would be. Um, uh, uh, and then labor, the attention economy, the emotional economy, the kind of immaterial labor idea that the time that I'm spending searching, how that is actually labor that is increasing value for these digital platforms. And then capital in the form of finance. These are kind of like the big mm -hmm. three that are kind of consuming me over the past year or yeah. so. Do you have any thoughts on this moving forward as this, as these seem to be like um, integral components for any sort of strategy moving forward? So I am, in general, more skeptical of the importance of all those things. So for one thing, yes, finance. <laughs> finance. Uh, now, I'm putting it kind of uh, – we're running out of time. That's in part yeah, yeah, one yeah. reason why I'm putting it. And also, you know, we have a good rapport or whatever. I'll put it less <laughs> less diplomatically <laughs> yeah, yeah. Than, than if we hadn't been talking for an hour and, and, and whatever else. But yeah. Um, So, yeah, I do think when it comes to finance capital, it is important to understand its dynamics. I think a chunk of what finance actually does – um, is in fact very much tied to the quote-unquote real economy, providing lines of credit and, and, and means for, for the expansion of uh, productive enterprises, right? So in other words, like sometimes we disentangle it too much just because things like, let's say, the stock market are clearly useless because the mo most of the money generated in the stock market are, is is essentially just a form of compensation for for uh, big shareholders as opposed to actually being used for for investment but a lot of what else mm. goes on in the financial sector I think is tied to real productive um, um, investment um, but either way it needs to be explored I think a lot of great people like head dunk headwood and others are are, are um, commenting and kind of doing work, expanding about um, Mike McCarthy. People should check out his his work. He sometimes writes for for Jacobin. Now, when it comes to like other like thinking about about the internet, thinking about um, what some people have also dubbed like surveillance capitalism um, yeah. and things like that, I'm more I'm slightly more skeptical because when let's say when we think about what Google or Facebook is like. 
Facebook is a platform that obviously gets wealthy off our data, right? Data that we're feeding into Facebook. We are also getting something from Facebook in that we're getting a platform for free to communicate with friends and family and whatever else. But what is Facebook doing with all this data, among other things? Well, one immediate revenue generator for them is obviously serving us ads. Facebook is an ad platform. But what are these ads that they're serving us for? Well, a lot of the time it's for ads from firms that are producing goods and services. Mm. So even then, it seems to me that we don't necessarily need new tools to understand what's happening. So the firms in which these goods and services are being produced are typical capitalist firms like any others, right? The um, uh, Facebook itself uh, is, is structured like a typical uh, capitalist firm, except its product is uh, a product that's like deeply tied to um to the production of, of uh, to these this this advertisement um, uh, platform, um, which again is 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 tied to this this productive sector. So I think often when people divide between finance capital, between old industrial capital, between new technological f uh, firms, they're not describing always how these things are are interlinked. And then when it comes mm. to things like emotional labor and whatnot, to me, it just is like, well, yes, so there's always a sphere of, of reproduction, which is necessary for capital. And yes, the um, interactions day to day of people in any society is going to be cemented by bonds of like kinship and family and, and other stuff, um, which we can understand in some sort of 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 way but but I, I don't think i think there's a lot of marxist writing on that sphere of reproduction already too mm. but so again this is my kind of like shorter polemical like maybe there's nothing new to learn and we could just apply well there's lots new to learn i should say but that we could apply the old tools to learn about about new things mm. gotcha Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, like you said, we're we're running up against a time limit, which, uh, but that is at least you're kind of indicating directions and you're giving resources for people that are listening, so that hopefully they can kind of jump into the debate, contribute, and shit. Hopefully there are people out there that are working in this space and they can write write some more stuff on it as well. So, um, so, so yeah, before we, we yeah. before we leave, uh, Troy, who are you rooting for? <laughs> oh, I'm from Los you, Angeles, you, so I'm a, I'm a Laker guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, congratulations. You're a guy, right? Life is good. Yeah, life is good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I am. I am. Though I so, do adopt. I must say, I adopt the Boston Homer line when it comes to how many championships the Lakers have. So, uh, I it's don't okay count, to be wrong. I don't you count know? the Minnesota uh, titles, but you know the Knicks only have two. So, what do I know? Yeah, well, I mean, you guys have custodian of Julius Randle, who's our baby. So we birthed him, and you now have married him. So I feel a kinship there. He's flowering now, it, becoming it, it an all star. Really, it is really incredible. He always had a lot of the tools. I did not, I did not expect this at all from Julius Randle. I really thought that, I thought he was a bum. He would just like <laughs> last last year, he would get the ball, the top of the key. He would dribble into three guys. He would turn Com around, yeah, just complete tunnel dribble vision. it off. Yeah, yeah, dribble it off his dick, and then then <laughs> like 
yeah, it was just like honestly, I was I was willing to trade him for a second rounder maybe. Well, and now he's shooting what forty one percent from three or something like that. Yeah, I think the shooting will might go down a little bit, but the passing is real. He's he's smart. He's calm. He's like doing some some really incredible um, stuff, like shepherding the entire offense. And we don't really have a good point guard. We don't have a point guard really um, on 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 the team. So because uh, because Derrick Rose and and Emmanuel quickly Emmanuel quickly yeah, yeah they're great, but they're kind of like combo ish guards. And then Alfred yeah. Payton's a bum. So it's really been all Julius <laughs> Randle. It's kind of incredible. Um, this one great season is probably the reason why we're not going to get Kate or some other awesome, <laughs> you know, uh, person. But this is fine. I'm fine with it. This is probably this is probably the most fun I had with the Knicks team since it's really pathetic. But since I was a kid and they made the finals run, actually the year after the finals run when we lost was to the, the Raptors Allen Houston in like team? 2000. That was like Houston and Sprewell and really yeah, old yeah. hobble from the Larry seed. Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Hubble Blair Johnson was the best. So that that one year where they won fifty games with Mello doesn't count. No, that that, that was awesome too. That was awesome, but it um, it was a very old team. Uh, a lot of those guys, like people forget, but that that team was like Kenyon Martin was on that team. Marcus Camby was on that team. Kurt oh, wow. Thomas, um, <laughs> Jason Kidd. So there was a lot of players playing important roles that you knew weren't going to stick around, mm-hmm. and. Melo was in his prime, but besides for that, like I guess there was Iman Shepard and a few other people, but it didn't seem like like the team had a future, really. It seemed like it was just like, let's see if we can make this happen. And I had vague dreams of them making like the Eastern Conference Finals and like maybe like being competitive against the Heat, just because I think they were like three and one in the series series against the uh, the Heat. And then I was thinking of like those Dirk Mav teams. They yeah. made the finals two times and won once, and like I'm like, oh well, maybe you could get lucky and be the worst team and have one star and do it. But yeah, anyway, I'm a pretty optimistic guy. I'm an I'm an optimistic Knicks fan. That's why I'm a socialist too. I'm an optimistic <laughs> um, person. I really do believe that one day, hopefully, I'll have a nice long life, 50, 60 years um, of it left, and uh, <laughs> one day our day will come, and I only need to see it once. If I can get serious for a second and bring this back to uh, politics, when are you going to, in Jacobin, have a section on the intersection between uh, sports and politics here? Like, come on. Can Troy and I be contributors where we just write about the philosophy of basketball and we write about, like, the new NBA and social media stars and uh, the power of the unions? Like, can we do this? Like, this needs to happen. There needs to be more fun in socialist publications. No, please. I agree with you totally i think jackman early on was was more was more fun and more eclectic in that in that way um i we do occasionally publish <laughs> publish pieces like that uh matthew miranda has published a few with us this this guy who's a who's a, who's a, a nicks blogger as well and also we do have a sports awesome. podcast now that that actually oh. i think this is this is something that just came out about a month ago there's only been oh, a few shit, episodes, I didn't know. But you should definitely check it out. Yeah, the yeah. Jacobin Sports Show, everyone should check it out. I really, yeah, I haven't did, done a good enough job promoting this one, but there's some really solid, interesting episodes. And again, like, I think it's important that the people who cover sports really love sports for their aesthetic qualities and for their cultural merits in and of itself. And then we can mm-hmm. discuss politics kind of on the margin and discuss, like, how like what are the underlying material conditions in in which this culture is taking place but 
often what I found in sports coverage on the left is that it's from people that take no joy from what sports is, like violent competition. <laughs> I think a lot of people were influenced by that whole Terry Eagleton line that's like sports is something that's used to pacify working class resentment and anger and things like that, right? That it's just a palliative. Um, so I think a lot of people think that way, that you know, like, that you get working class people that are angry, but you give them some fanaticism or something like that, and then they're cool and pacified. Well, so it's a, a lot of selection nonsense. thing. I mean, yeah, what are academics going to say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but like... Um, uh, Troy, what I was saying is that, like, it's, it's, would you say that about culture? Would you say that about, like, oh, literature? Um, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, like art, this, the Mona Lisa is the opiate of the, the masses. Like, why would you, why would you say that about, <laughs> about, about sports if you wouldn't say it about, about any other form of, of art? And if you are the type of person who thinks that, like, blockbuster movies are the, op- or even, you know, religion for that matter is like an opiate the opiate of the masses in the pejorative sense you know the way marx meant it was a little bit differently um uh but you know then i think it's it's silly this is just parts of human human culture and good parts yeah in my, my opinion. all right so then so then the other thing we have to give a shout out to uh michael burns he's uh he actually used to be on the podcast he used to do a segment for us a lot back in the day uh, a buddy of mine that went to grad school with he's got a phd in philosophy he's a writer and host for wisecrack he basically just wants to know this this is about the knicks not like do you enjoy the knicks but his question was when are the knicks going to be good again like is there a process like is there a like you're enjoying the season here, but what's the deal? Do they need one star? Do they need two pieces? Like how far away are the Knicks from being? They're, they're, good? they're already good now. They're already gonna be a playoff team <laughs> this year. Uh, and yeah, yeah, but they didn't. They, weren't they two? I think they were two games above 500 the last I checked. So they're yeah, one they're, game, they're, one game above the Easter's week. Okay, so they're they're fine. Um, <laughs> and what I would say is they probably have a number three guy on a very good team right now uh so they're gonna need to develop someone um from their additional for the existing roster of people like i think rj barrett's gonna be very good but i don't think he'll be that good i think quickly's gonna be very good i don't think he's gonna be that good i think he'll be more at best like a lou williams type like spark plug off the off the bench uh, or like like starting but but kind of lou williams ish as his peak and i think mm. rj barrett's peak is probably like a um well obviously his real peak is like a jimmy butler like slow develop and slow growth like or jalen brown and like does everything right but probably well short of that so yeah develop one star then get one more star in in um free agency or get lucky in the draft and and yeah then you're you're good but like i said just like the ira said after that brighton bombing my line is you only have to get lucky lucky once because <laughs> i only need to see the Knicks win once. I'm from New York. I'm a Yankee fan, too. I need to see the Yankees win once every 10 years to be happy. I need to see the Giants win once every, like, 15 or 20 years to be happy. I only need to see the Knicks win once in, like, 70 years, and I'll be I'll be happy. <laughs> I'll be happy. All right. On that note, let's go ahead and let you go, Baskar. Um, where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, give yourself a little plug. Also, tell people where they can get the Socialist Manifesto um, and things like that. Yeah, so you could find my stuff on jackmanmag.com. I'm also a columnist at The Guardian, but please do check out Jacobin. And as far as the Socialist Manifesto, you can get it at Powell's. Get it anywhere but but Amazon. 
though if you must get it from amazon you know it's probably better than buying any other shit on amazon you're buying socialist propaganda we will still get our cut but uh but um but yeah so it's it's pretty it's pretty widely widely available at the at the moment but i i really do appreciate what you two are doing and and again i i'm so grateful to have the opportunity to have such a long and and eclectic conversation we covered a lot of ground yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like we're also just opening up doors too, you know, and, and when you get into these types of almost stream of consciousness discussions that are loosely structured, I think a lot of stuff comes out. Like I took a bunch of notes that I'm like, oh shit, I want to keep thinking about that or I want to explore that more. I'd love to in- engage in that more. So maybe we can just put an ellipsis at the end of this conversation and get you back on in the future to chat more about why you don't believe that derivative uh, finance is integral in, in what not no I'm just that's my hobby horse I'm gonna I'm gonna shut up now <laughs> no, no that's no. good that's um, good but... yeah let's 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 <laughs> let's uh, let's plan on it I'm I'm happy to be be on uh, later and let's definitely keep keep chatting and and yeah it's been great talking with you it's been great meeting you uh, Troy as well yeah and if the Knicks win a playoff series I think we'll have to make a date of that just so you if can they win a game publicly. if they win a game. <laughs> in, in the playoffs, it'll be it'll be big. If they win like a, one game against Brooklyn and it's one one and they're a little feisty in a game three and people are freaking out, that'll be awesome. That'll be fun. That awesome. Lower yeah, yeah. well, expectations. We'll, get, <laughs> we'll we'll bring out we'll bring out the metaphorical champagne then or the real champagne. Either way, and we'll uh, and we'll do a little celebratory episode. So, all right, brother, uh, all right, go take, take care. care of what you got to take care of. Thank you so much. All again. right. Take care. Bye. Thanks, Bhaskar. All right. So thanks so much to Bhaskar for that. Uh, I can't believe we got such a good discussion about socialism and political economy and um, the importance of political history and also got to talk a bit about Julius Randle, my former boy. That was fantastic. (laughs) I mean, were you a fan? Were you in? Were you were you hopeful for him when he was with the Lakers? Dude, Julius Randle was the top pick. He was the seventh pick in the draft back in whatever six years ago. He was the highest pick the Lakers had had since I believe James Worthy in the in nineteen eighty one or two or three when around there. So he mm. was the highest pick the Lakers had ever had in my lifetime. At that point, they had a couple higher picks after that because they sucked for so long after Kobe retired. Um, yeah, but. Yeah, I was. I saw. I saw Julius Randle in summer league, right? I saw him break his leg in his first game. Um, yeah, dude, I love that guy. And a lot of problems. That guy had a circuitous route to becoming an all star. But uh, I'm very appreciative of what the Knicks have done for him and the role he's been able to take there. Good, 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 good. So thank you, Knicks fans, for you know being the custodian of my boy. <laughs> so you know what we got to do now, Austin. What's that? I think everybody's favorite part of the podcast. Well, maybe not everybody. But sometimes <laughs> mine. The Sticky Leaves segment. That's the part of the podcast where one of us talks about whatever it is that's bringing us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So, Austin, other than the certainty uh, of our socialist utopia in the future, what else yes. is giving you meaning? today well i'm really excited because i have a a new shipment of argan oil that's being delivered um (laughs) so that is making me excited uh i've got a full stock of manuka honey no um i don't have any no 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 skincare tips today what i do want to talk about though is i've been wanting to do this for a long time and i did it uh for a little bit when i lived in scotland 
and um, I keep telling myself that I'm going to do it again and do it again and do it again, and I just haven't been doing it, and I finally did it the other day, and I'm really excited about it, and I want to just tell people why I'm excited about it. I have subscribed, and don't worry, there's not like a sponsor for the podcast, like some fucking nefarious <laughs> sponsor, because I'm not even going to tell you what the name of the company is, but it's just more the principle of the idea, because I think it's rad. I'm excited because I'm getting my first vegetable box delivered tomorrow to my house. Have you ever had a fresh market, farmer market, vegetable box service, Troy? Yes, I am aware of this. Have you done it? Um, yeah, I, not on a subscription service, but I've done it individually. Yeah, that's, I've done, every once in a while you do that, right? You go and you just like load up a box with like the veggies and they're, they've been freshly picked and they've got dirt on them and stuff like that. But I'm which, really excited. Which you don't watch off, right? No, you just fucking eat it, man. God made dirt and dirt don't hurt. Okay? Come on, this, man. That this is my favorite nurse. Austin take. <laughs> just fucking eat the dirty vegetables. It's good for you. Yeah, dude. Well, that's what do animals do it, and they're fucking fine. What are you worried about? So you get some pinworms. Then just fucking deal with it. You got a little itchy butt, and then you just handle it, man. It goes away. Stop. Stop tripping, man. No. Um, I, I just – I love it. I love it. I've got a little bit of that, like – you know, cottage core, uh, I want to be out of my tiny home, kind of in the, the, the fucking prairies of Montana, you know, sort of thing in me a little bit. I've got a little bit of that in me. And so the whole like fresh veggie thing, I think really appeals to that side of me. Cause you do, you mm -hmm. just get this box delivered to you and you don't know, you don't know what they're going to deliver. It's basically whatever's fresh that day when they do the picking and then they load it up into a box and they drop it off on your doorstep and you've got fresh veggies for the next week or something like that. And I'm like, I'm not vegetarian or vegan at the moment. I do, I go through phases sometimes where I'm plant-based, but I'm like 90% plant-based, you know, I eat a little fish every now and then. And sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll have a little chicken or meat every once in a while, but I'm like 90% um, plant-based. And, uh, and this for me is, I think, like the best way to get your vegetables because they're not all pumped with all the hormones and shit like that. Um, and you're really supporting like local farms, local business, and um, local growers and local distributors and things like that. And so uh, obviously you got to find ones that aren't like backed by a huge, massive, like <laughs> the Monsanto uh Farm, farm to market vegetable box version. Um, probably stay away from those if they have those. But I think they're really cool. I love it. Uh, my girl and I last weekend we went and we stayed at a little cabin. It was like this meditation yoga retreat, and we stayed at this little cabin um, on this farm. And they had like a chicken coop, and we got like fresh eggs in the morning that were like freshly from the chickens. And then they had like this little vegetable patch and we didn't go to the vegetable patch, but the guy who owned the farm was like, yeah, yeah, just go into the vegetable patch and just pick off what you need. If you want like green leafy vegetables or anything, like that, just grab, grab them, you know, and, uh, and then go ahead and just have your food. And I just, oh, that, a little bit of that world, it just, it makes my soul sing quite a bit. You know, like even driving through the little country town, stopping in the little town and getting a cup of coffee and chatting with the barista at this town that literally has like seven stores on it. Like even that to me, it just like it just makes my soul come alive a little bit. I don't know why. I don't know. I'm I'm an urban boy. I'm a beach boy, but I'm also I'm like a mountain and country town boy. And I'm confused in a lot of ways, uh, I guess you could say. But um, but I just kind of that stuff just sings to me. So. 
I don't know. It doesn't have to be a vegetable box. I mean, I like the vegetable box thing, but I guess what I'm really, like, singing the praises of are this kind of, like, larger lifestyle, this larger thing that I just I just love so much. So, yeah, that's kind of what's given me meaning this week. Yeah, I mean, I think, and tell me if you're, you're vibing with this, but you think part of it's just, it's not necessarily, like, a purity thing, because there is actually a movement of basically, like, neo-Nazis that are big into... Um, like organic food only, non-GMO, farmer's market. Like you can show up to farmer's markets here in the South and you can't tell if someone's like a hipster liberal or a neo-fascist. <laughs> like they're, they're yeah, eco, the same. Um, eco-fascism, man. Fucking, it's a thing. It's a real thing. You know? yeah, and the, and it's the whole cottage core, the whole cottage core aesthetic has, has kind of like been related to some of these trends in like neo-fascist neo-fascist sensibilities so yeah it, it definitely is a thing yeah so i'm very opposed to the kind of purity angle uh when it comes to that and so i think we should reject that as the interpretation of what's meaningful about the kind of thing you're talking about but there is something i think importantly different that's like um kind of being involved in some way in the food that you eat and not being not seeing food as sort of a uh, like eating is a purely passive um, mm. activity, right? And then also the food itself as being a thing that is is simply uh, an object that you utilize only for the sake of like calorie consumption and nutrient yes. extraction. Um, and so that means like cooking. It's like the most fundamental early human activity that differentiates us from the other animals, right? Um, it's like cooking is super important and developing your foods and thinking a bit about what you eat. And uh, that doesn't mean like always only eat healthy. Like I fucking enjoy a you know, cheeseburger as much as the next person. Right. Um, but not seeing your entire life as as simply a passive recipient of food for the sake of nutrient extraction. Um, not that, you know, sometimes we have to do stuff like that because ain't no one got time for that shit. Right. But I do think that like. <laughs> cooking and developing your food and, and doing stuff like that and, and making um, the consumption of food a human activity and then also an activity you share with others if you can is super important to a meaningful life. Yeah, I think that's right. Like I, I oftentimes think that, uh, and it's really kind of just a simple pithy thing, but it kind of rings in my head a lot when we think about an economy that's structured based on production and consumption, it would be better if we had social economic systems that were based on like contribution and participation. Right. And I know that that might just seem like I'm playing word games and that it's semantics, but I don't think it is. It's it's a total kind of like reversal of the relations of the process of um, of how it is that we access resources, that we create resources and that we participate in the using and sharing of resources. And maybe in my own way, I can I can justify to myself that when I go um, and I stay at a little cabin and I'm on like a little homestead farm kind of thing like, like we did this last weekend or when I order a vegetable box, maybe somehow I feel like I'm, I'm living in a participatory and um, um, contributionist uh, kind of paradigm. You know, maybe that's kind of what I can do. Oh, maybe that's it. Something along those lines. Yeah, so, we, were, we were talking yeah. about radical democracy with Bhaskar a little bit ago, right? And I think a, a phrase I would like to use to describe that is um, sort of equality in being co-constitutors of, mm. of our political system. And 
I think co-constitution and that it, that's even deeper than politics. I think at the level of ontology is true as well about persons that were co-constitutors of one another. And that's the kind of thing that gets mm. stripped in the capitalist imagination because individuals were seen as atomic, um, you know, atomic consumers, producers, whatever, when it's not true. We're in, in our family life and in our friendships and in everything else. We're not that way. Um, and all the important things that matter to us were not that way. And it's only really by sort of being forced to be atomic individuals that we have that conception. So, yeah, I mean, mm. can, can engaging in those sort of uh, trips be a kind of consumerist um, like idealization and fantasy? Yeah, they can be. Sure. But if they actually yeah. like affect you and change you and make you think about how you act in your daily life and affect how you actually uh, exist in the world, then they're not idealistic fantasies they're helping to constitute you into a different kind of person yeah and this is something i've been thinking about a lot lately and i'm really trying to to really just meditate on this and think on this and and work through this but to really just find like we talk about this a lot but to really like find the beauty in in to use the language that you just used find the beauty and the joy in our co-constitutive relations that we actually are already involved in, right? Mm. The lie is is that we're not involved in it. The truth is that, no, no, we already are involved in that. And so for me then, it's about, okay, how can I find the joy in those moments when I am, um, when I'm really tapping into the fact that I am involved in that? And then what that also does is that rings alarm bells for injustice when you say, oh, shit, no, we are co-constituting this, but you're not um, the system or or the power structures that be are not allowing us to actually benefit from that. They're not allowing us to actually attune ourselves to the reality that is, right? And maybe that's being a little bit ontological and essentialist, but I'm okay with that right now. I'm kind of okay with that right now. And I'm really trying, yeah, and I'm really trying to like... an friendly kind of day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And so I'm okay with my ontology grounding my politics and social life today. Um, but yeah, so so that's kind of my – that's my sticky leaves for the day. If you can, go on a little retreat. And I don't mean you have to pay money for some sort of retreat. But go camping. Go to the beach. Go on a hike. Go sit down and have like a lovely patient – picnic and meal with your friends in a park, you know, go pick some fresh vegetables, you know, go find a local uh, craft brew place that brews or that grows their own hops and does their own thing and go do some beer tasting there or a cider mill that makes their own apples and then they, they do their own cider and you can go pick a box of apples. Like go and go and do that stuff, you know, or fuck man, like there's got to be other non quote naturalistic and earthy ways to do this too. I just can't think of any off the top of my head right now, but go and surf with your buddy and go and play basketball with your friends and go and fucking whatever else have a day where you sit around and do a book club and read read books and talk about stuff but yeah those things they all kind of revolve around the same set of uh, same set of concerns and it is that issue about kind of contribution and participation so i don't know that's what's given me life this week and uh yeah Dude, all that stuff sounds so hopelessly utopian right now you mean you can go outside and be around <laughs> other people I, 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 I don't believe that. Oh, that man, I happen. forgot. I'm sorry. I yeah. keep forgetting. I keep forgetting <laughs> that I live in like a totally different world right now. Uh, well, do it online is what I mean. Oh, um, no, God. Just well, fucking get hey, vaccinated already and let's do this. 
yeah, get back. That, that's what. That's what I'm. That's it. Get back wherever you are in the world. If you can go outside and do it with people in person, then do that. If you cannot, I apologize. I'm sorry. I'm probably just adding to stress and grief. Get vaccinated, please. Let's fucking get to the point where we can get back to this sort of thing. But yes, so that's what's going on. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode. Um, thank you, everybody, so much for tuning in. Thank you to Baskar for joining us again. Link down below in the show notes for his book. Uh, definitely check out Jacobin Mag if you don't already know about Jacobin. Uh, definitely uh, get on that. Um, I think that's pretty much it, man. We don't really have anything else to do. We did all the housekeeping at the top of the show, so fuck it. I say we just get out of here unless there's anything else you feel like needs to be said. Just one more thing that's got to be said, dude. What's got to be said? Das Vidani, Americanski. Yeah.